Hi there. Before we begin, just a quick note. Due to the COVID-19 epidemic, this episode was recorded from our participants' homes using their available equipment. Naturally, you might hear some cracks and pops or some homey background noises. We hope this won't interfere with your enjoyment and recommend listening with headphones. In the meantime, until we get back to the studio, stay safe, healthy, and curious. Hi, thank you for joining us at The SIP, the Smart Institute podcast, a show about all the things that excite us here at the Communication Department at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. In each episode, we host researchers and doctoral students from the department for an intimate talk about their studies. In this episode, Professor Christian Baden and Olga Pasitzalska will discuss the very timely question of how people deal with disinformation. They will help us make sense of buzzwords like fake news and post-truth, and explain why, particularly in this day and age, journalists are more important than ever. So stay tuned and get smart! All right, so um, I'm speaking with Olga Pasitzelska, who is a uh, PhD student at the Department of Communication at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And um, well, you came to, to Israel roughly actually the same time as I did six years yeah. ago, uh, but from Ukraine and uh, you yeah. know, doing this like the kind of proper Zionist way, like with uh, um, doing uh, uh, Hebrew classes in, in the desert and in the kibbutz yeah. and uh, uh, started uh, studying communications in Ariel University, but then you found your way to the Hebrew University, where yeah. you 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 added a um, master's in political communication. And for the last few years now, I have had the honor and the pleasure to be your PhD supervisor on your um, PhD project, which deals with how people um, well handle confusing, contested, propagandistic, public political information. Yeah. Uh, in the case of your home country of Ukraine, um, where I guess, you know, like the ongoing conflict is not that far from where you grew up. Yeah, it's uh, pretty close, unfortunately. Okay, so we'll talk about it later, of course. <laughs> and yeah, and you're Dr. Christian Baden, my supervisor, among other things, but <laughs> um, you're also senior lecturer at the Department of communication at the Hebrew University and you came to Israel as you mentioned also six years ago um, as a part of a big project that was interested in the role that the media play in the violent conflict um, you were in a Munich University before and you did your PhD in Amsterdam and you studied how people make sense of political changes um, and before that, <laughs> you studied in, in London, in Leipzig, and also in Smolensk in Russia, which is um, a little bit geographically... <laughs> yeah, it was also very brief, to be honest. But you know Russian a little bit. Yes. yes among other things. And um, so today you're working on, uh, mostly on the dynamics of public political controversies, and so you're trying to understand how... Uh, nastier forms of political communication can influence the debate. What do you mean by nastier forms of communication, by the way? Well, um, on the whole, I would say I'm, I'm very much interested in everything that is not cooperative, that is trying to disrupt uh, like a free, constructive flow of, of communication, uh, which can be deliberate, such as uh, propaganda, um, 
efforts to hide, to cover up things. That can also be forms of, of like less, less uncooperative political communication that are not strategic. Like, you know, like, uh, for instance, there are a lot of kind of conflicting beliefs. There's a lot of emotion and passion in politics that leads people to take in uh, positions um, that if they were trying to kind of get to a common outcome, they probably wouldn't be using. But this is how we feel about politics, right? Like it's, it's an intense, it's a, it's a topic that goes to what we care about, what is, what is important in our lives. And that means yeah. that we are not always behaving in the smartest and uh, most dispassionate and uh, most rational most way. Most rational way, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we are talking today about the problem of fragmented information environment and how people survive in that fragmented information environment. Yeah, and you could say there's been a bit of a moral panic about this in the last years, right? Like, I mean, the latest since the uh, election of Donald Trump to become president of the United States. But this has already been going on before. Yeah. That that uh, there has been a lot of worry if you look into newspapers, commentary, talk shows, even like, you know, even in academia, a lot of people have been really, really worried about what they perceive to be growing uh, levels of hostility and of antagonism in uh, political communication and that's mostly to do with well a kind of a number of perceptions that you could say that are very intuitive right like we, we're talking about yeah. polarization we're talking about conspiracy theories now especially in connection with the uh, COVID pandemic with the virus yeah yes and and uh, this all these phenomena have become incredibly visible and that has led a lot of people to think that maybe something fundamental has changed in the way in which we are doing political communication and we should get worried because this is yeah. potentially scary, right? I mean, they talk about fake news, um, the idea that we might be lied to by uh, public information. This is genuinely worrying. Okay, but this problem we are talking about is probably as old as the world itself. Right? It's not something that just came out of the thin air, that people are suddenly confused about everything. Yeah, you could probably say that. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of uh, instances that have been documented throughout history of, of times when people were worried about the loss of political culture, of like the ability to agree with their opponents. Yeah, the, pro the periods of harsh polarization, as we now call it. <laughs> but then people just killed each other, you know. And um, so, um, so we, we say that rumor, rumors and like contradictory facts and contradictory perspectives uh, is a very old phenomenon, but maybe now it's especially relevant due to many reasons. Yeah, so, and the argument has been made, right? Like, I mean, um, for instance, Ulrich Beck spoke about the risk society. Yeah, sure. So he, he said that um, actually, in 1986, that we entered as a new era, era of ambivalence, when uh, the world became so complex due to globalization and the development of new technologies. Um, back in 1986, there were many new technologies. Um, and he said that the world became so complex uh, for people to comprehend, to understand it, that nobody knows what is true anymore. 
and he thought actually that this is a good thing that maybe because nobody can claim that he or she is right then they become very tolerant to each other's views and maybe all conflicts between left and right for instance will gradually vanish that is a wonderful vision that he had there right that basically the uh, complexity and our own insight that we we can't fully understand things would actually create some humility but well, yes. and this is also a sentiment that we've seen in the, the early internet age, like for similar reasons, like there's a sure. lot of new technologies and a lot of online optimists at the time believed that now that everybody has access to all kinds of information. Yeah, and people suddenly got some free platforms, free of the government intervention, free of the um, traditional institutional, you know, pr pressures and they can and develop a free debate. Exactly, that was the, the hope, right? There were a lot of people who believed that with the online communication, democracy is finally freed, right? Like we can all have a rational debate without power intervention, checking our facts uh, and speaking with one another constructively. And well, I, I'm afraid to say that it has shattered a little bit over the last decade. Um, yeah, it, 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 it actually probably came to be something totally opposite. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously this, the criticism or the, the skepticism has been there right from the beginning and also uh, Beck's thesis has not been unspoken in academia, right? Like there's always um, the potential of new technologies, communication technologies, new situations for um, liberating more uh, constructive talk, but there is also always a potential for abuse. And in the last years, we've been very much focusing on this. Right? Like there is a yeah. lot of talk about echo chambers where people are only talking to like-minded others and re reaffirming whatever they believe already. There is all this talk about fake news, which is allegedly a phenomenon that uh, thrives on uh, social media. We hear a lot about Russian trolls. All these yeah. phenomena are, uh, are in everybody's talk here. So probably like people might call the back very naive. <laughs> I don't know, like, oh, maybe, maybe we are going to end up a little bit on the naive side too, but like, we need to probably get some of these scary phenomena out of the way first. Yeah, we may, we might also differentiate between naive and optimistic. <laughs> So let's start maybe by quickly um, talking about all this kind of uh, new theories about media space and maybe taking a bit of it apart and you know deconstructing them so we may start maybe with post-truth era so we entered this era of post-truth when alternative facts are have the same weight as a true actual facts and the truth is more about how do you feel about it? So how do you feel about it, Christian? Well, I guess uh, there's a little bit of a confusion in here, right? And uh, Kellyanne Conway, who raised this idea of alternative facts on live television, might have benefited 
from maybe uh, coming to the Hebrew University and studying a little bit about these matters. But, um, <laughs> no, but like, um, seriously, there is a misunderstanding under this uh, talk about post-truth, right? Like uh, the observation, uh, which is generally correct, is that there are a lot of things that can be truthfully said in the present um, that seem to be in conflict with one another, right? Like a person can be, for instance, a very effective politician, but at the same time, a dishonest one or a, a development can be very uh, hope-inspiring, yet at the same time scary, right? And um, yeah. this is exactly the thing that Beck was talking about, this complexity of the world, that there are so many facets, so many aspects of everything, and everything is interconnected. So we can very rarely summarize and say something simply true about a thing. And that means that what you see depends very much on where you stand, where you're looking for, right? Like if you, for instance, like if you just take the um, take the debate about, uh, say, democracy in Israel, like how you perceive this current assault on or defense of democracy depends quite a bit on who you are. If you are a minority voter, if you're one of those people who don't feel well represented in the majoritarian representation in, in the Knesset, then you feel probably very differently threatened by current events than if you are one of those people who know themselves in the majority and who know that if the Knesset reigns more or less free, unchecked, um, that you're probably going to end up on top, right? So uh, yeah. this is kind of what people mean by multiple truths or my truth, your truth, right? This is basically depending on who you are, how you are affected by something, different aspects are more important and that means that you come to different conclusions that does not mean that the other conclusion is untrue it just means it is not yours but that does of course not mean that we can no longer distinguish between true and untrue facts right like sure. you talk about um, like there's this debate in the united states about kamala harris right like uh, if you say um, that she is not born in the united states that is incorrect people you this. cannot change it. Yeah. You cannot change it just by you know seeing yeah, it from other perspectives. Exactly, but like from another perspective, there are of course a lot of people who feel that it is somehow illegitimate, that it is disturbing, that it is irritating that a person of color uh, who has views that they perceive as offensive to what they understand as the American um, ideology or American way of life could become a VP. So they use this kind of suspicion that she might not have been born in the United States to express not a fact, but a perspective upon a fact, namely that they find it illegitimate. This is one of those, those big debates where, like, I guess, postmodernism went a little bit out of hand. Um, but it's not the only one. I mean, like, we, we have all these debates about filter bubbles and echo chambers, right? Like this, this what I mentioned before, that we are worried that nowadays uh, lefties are only talking with lefties, right-wingers are only talking with right-wingers, and we completely lose touch of the fact that there are also people who are different in our societies. So let's maybe break a bit a concept about echo chambers. So what is actually the problem with that? <laughs> well, one uh, problem that has been argued, of course, is that if people are caught up in an echo chamber, they lose sight of what people on the other side of the political aisle or like uh, with other interests, other views might think. So they, they, they might get, and that is one of the worries that's been most prominently expressed 
by Cass Sunstein, one of the four former advisors to the Obama administration, they might get the sense that their particular viewpoints are majority, they are self-speaking, they are widely accepted, and that means that they are more or less free to go with this. There is no major opposition to be expected. And if then somebody actually does manage to uh, make themselves heard and oppose this view that this community in the echo chamber have, the people in the echo chamber, and that's at least, they don't get it. They don't understand yeah. where out of a sudden this opposition is coming from. Yeah, so they might not understand why their views, it was so justified by prior you know, exposure to the like-minded people who just agree and clap them. Like, how can it be opposed? And then they start disregarding this, mm -hmm. this opposition. They start to just, you know, refusing to talk to, to the opposite side. They refuse to acknowledge them as a legitimate, <laughs> legitimate uh, other opinion. Yeah. So may, the, like the question is how uh, this disagreement uh, is like unproductive. Like what does it do to people if they are exposed to people who disagree? In an experiment in a lab, this always works beautifully, right? Like that you put yeah. like a few people into a room who disagree with one another and then... Um, and they sort of people, start shouting. <laughs> yeah, they start shouting, but also at some point they start realizing that there are the other people are not entirely delusional, right? That they have reasons, that they have, have perceptions, they have a good cause for some of their views. Um, and the problem, of course, is that in, in uh, out there in the wild, right, like in society, <laughs> that is not necessarily how it works. Like uh, people yeah. are very quick to dismiss claims that are uh, not in line with what they already thought. But the fact is that researchers uh, also go into, you know, the most dark places and start, uh, you know, screening the comments of, YouTube videos or something like that and the there is no actually debate there's just you know shouting and, and disregarding and and uh... yeah and I mean like there, there, there also there is some evidence that these kind of echo chambers or like in the because of the, there's a variant of this theory that's called filter bubbles where the idea is that this is like actively pushed by social media algorithms these things I mean, they exist but they exist really at the, at the fringes of society. And um, there are, uh, of course, there are um, forums which are not intended really for interactive debate, right? Like you mentioning yeah. YouTube comments, like would you, like if you feel like having a constructive political debate, would you call up a YouTube conspiracy theory video and try and start interacting with the uh, users, that's that's not really what people do, right? Like this is a this is a shouting place where 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 people formulate their frustration with the world or their support for this truth teller that they just saw on yeah. the screen. But this is not a debate platform, so we shouldn't be really surprised that in this place there is not much debate going on. Maybe we will talk a bit about fake news, which is the fascination of our time um, following uh, Donald Trump's inauguration. Um, so one argument is that audience can't really know the, what is true um, because you have these politicians and evil spin doctors 
who fabricate facts, who can fabricate anything, starting from just a news, uh, you know, text, um, and back to the videos, with the deep fakes, with, you know, changing of facial expressions of politicians. You really can't tell anymore what is authentic, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and therefore, um, the adepts of fake news theory claim that you can persuade anyone in anything because um, if you can fabricate evidence, the hard facts which we were talking about, then you can, you know, do anything and change public opinion in whatever direction you want. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this is, uh, I guess, the biggest moral panic in this domain in the, in the last decade, right? Like also because yeah. fake news at the same time it, it claims that there is a huge problem in our public debate, and at the same time, it also accuses uh, journalists and tries to delegitimize um, media practices. And I think in this case, this is again a little bit of a misunderstanding, but this time a deliberate one. This is this is not uh, like you know the, the, the post truth. This is kind of like this, this is what happens if you uh, take post uh, modernism a little bit too seriously and think nothing is true, but fake news is a deliberate distortion. The idea here is, I think, to uh, mix up two phenomena that are both real but completely different. The first first thing is that uh, we, of course, we know that uh, there are fabrications, right? There is propaganda. Yeah. There are people who are uh, falsifying facts and who are successfully inserting them into news and, and stuff like this. Sometimes there are also false facts because somebody just doesn't do their job quite properly. They, they don't mistakes. Chicken. Yeah, exactly. And like, no, nobody is perfect. And some people are like, let's say relatively systematically not perfect. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so like errors happen. Right, but errors happen uh, in, and they have always happened, and it's easy to show. Like wh wherever you stand politically, it is always easy to find a piece of news where you can see that uh, a journalist uh, made an error and published something that she shouldn't have published, or something like this. But, but as we know, yeah, as we know, also we have this, you know, bias towards negative examples, towards negative information. So if we see all the time that people say that this journalist uh, didn't check information and, and this journalist didn't tell us the truth or didn't tell us everything, then we kind of, th th this is made salient for, for our brain and we generalize from that. We, we think that, okay, now nobody tells the truth. Yeah, that is, that is kind of leading to the other uh, of the two phenomena that are being mixed up, right? Like the other thing that we also all know is this experience that relates to what we just spoke before uh, about like this this feeling that um, the viewpoint or the perspective that somebody is taking in order to understand something isn't mine it's like it yeah. doesn't collect it doesn't connect to mine so at, we all have this experience right that we kind of read the news and we feel like ah that doesn't tally that that that's not yeah. how i see it right and now the, the, the kind of the mean confusion that is in the world of fake news is that it mixes up these two things, right? Like the actual false information and the perception that this kind of coverage, as I just perceive it, doesn't tally with my world. Uh, yeah. By suggesting that everything that somebody is saying that does not tally with my perception is probably fake. It's probably a lie. It's not just that 
this is authentic, this is a truthful piece of information, but seen from somebody else's point of view. Yeah. But if this is not in line with my personal experience with my world, then my best explanation is probably they're lying. Either they're being lied to, or they are deliberately lying themselves, then you go into the direction of conspiracy theories. But these two things are really important to keep apart, right? Like because yeah. errors happen, but journalists, uh, journalism, uh, political competition are pretty good at weeding out um, errors, right? Like one journalist yeah. makes an error one day, and then the next day, some other journalist writes a piece and say like, this journalist didn't check this thing. <laughs> and uh, out of a sudden, you have the error corrected publicly. Same thing if, you know, if a politician lies, what is the next thing that happens? The politician from the other party points out that the politician lied. Yeah, so as long as we have this pluralism, you know, politicians from different camps, journalists from different camps who can correct each other, who can point uh, into this direction of misrepresentation, then we probably are fine. So what's actually the problem? So we try to kind of disintegrate all these big clouds of uh, disinformation, of post-truths, of um, fake news and filter bubbles. But as we concluded, nothing of it is actually such a huge issue that will threaten the man mankind to you know, extinction. Um, so what, what is actually the problem with the modern world? <laughs> the problem with the modern world. I don't think it's just a problem with the modern world. Uh, the modern world makes it more visible um, that there might be a general problem in the way in which we deal with information. Right? If I go back almost exactly 100 years, actually, um, there's been this uh, famous journalist in the United States, Walter Lippmann, who yeah. wrote a very, very influential book called Public Opinion. And one of the key things that he found or that he says in this book is that very often um, it's an incorrect perception that we, like we read the information, we perceive what's going on, and then we interpret this. But rather what he says is the other way around. We already know, right? Like we, we understand things first. We, we, um, yeah, we don't come to the news as a blank page. Exactly. We, have some preconceptions right exactly and then basically you already like you you already know how the world functions to some extent and then you read something on the news and this thing on the news immediately makes a certain kind of sense right it immediate it is either immediately a, a confirmation of something that you already thought and then you read it as if it was a confirmation of that you don't really go into depth, you don't go really analyze, you don't really try and understand really what happened. Or the other possibility is you immediately recognize this as one of those things that the people on the other side are saying, yeah. uh, which, which you already know isn't true because they're on the other side, right? They, they don't understand things. They are not in your world. They have this, this, this weird understanding, these weird values, this uh, um, perspective that does not make sense. So people are very, very quick to put things into boxes. And, um, and, and that is uh, indeed uh, something that may be uh, a problem, especially in the modern world, because with so much information around there, so many sources, and literally everything that one can possibly believe, including a few things that you really cannot believe, is published. 
right? And you, yeah. you, you can always find support for whatever you believe. And you can always find an example of something of which you can be quite certain that this is a fabrication. So this makes it really easy for us to remain in our uh, subjective preconceptions and not challenge what we uh, what we believe, not be open-minded. But this is, of course, not the, the only problem, right, Olga? Sometimes we have situations where there is so much falsification that there is really a bigger problem. Yeah, so when the governments take a lead or the political actors, political parties start to deliberately construct these ideological narratives, ideological stories that try to mobilize their, their audiences and may, make them act for, for a particular political purpose. So um, I'm interested in a Russian-Ukrainian conflict, so this is a perfect uh, exemplary case where when there is a government that tries to justify its uh, political actions, uh, illegal political actions such as intervention, um, and tries to change the public opinion, both domestic and foreign public opinion, by constructing these um, ideological narratives where, that justify these actions. Uh, and this is problematic a bit, <laughs> also for, you know, also for the local um, political situation and also for the global conflict, because if these things are justified by the international uh, audiences, then what, what is the international law, you know, what, what is it if, it's, if it can be justified through disinformational attacks or disinformational war? What really makes these situations so so fierce and so so dangerous in a way is this immediate charging of the different truths that are being promoted with like uh, strong value references, right? Like uh, like the, the patriotic narratives, like the uh, like basically yeah. giving people who you would normally expect to disagree with you or to challenge your narrative. Uh, with uh, like stigmatizing dissent, stigmatizing everybody who has a who dares to question, right? Yeah. Stigmatizing the, them as immoral, as not loyal to their own people, and so forth. Yeah, and that's that's a classic hallmark of propaganda narratives. That basically, it's not just that we have a truth. All political communication works a little bit like this, right? Like we have the truth, and the others didn't get it. But like when there's an active stigmatization, an active repression of dissent, then this is always a good moment. Yeah. But there is like one more phenomenon that also maybe this is right, really kind of a postmodern phenomenon to some extent, I guess. Um, a new kind of propaganda that we've seen in the last maybe decade, where the idea is not really to take a big narrative, some justification and sell it through yeah. ideology uh, to the population but where the purpose really is mostly to confuse right to kind of yeah. to blur the yeah exactly to blur the, the image to blur the view um classic uh, example would be for instance there's been a lot of this going on in the syrian conflict where um there was so many different viewpoints so many reports on all kind of uh, transgressions everything is somehow uh, wrong, everybody is morally reprehensible, there is no right cause. And that is mostly a narrative uh, that is meant to demobilize, right? This is the exact opposite of this propaganda narrative, Olga, that you just spoke about, where yeah, the idea to mobilize. To, yeah. 
mobilize right. uh, people's feelings, people's beliefs, to infuriate them, to make them angry mm. um, about something. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually something that, in a way, that the Russian state broadcaster that has become quite popular in several countries recently, Russia Today, has yeah. specialized in. Right? Like they kind of they push all kind of negative information, everything that didn't work, everything that makes you doubt the functioning of systems, of institutions, does not really have like a consistent ideological story that it's trying to push. But what it does is it gives you a profound sense that everything is fake, everything is incorrect. And that, yeah, is and that the democracy is basically dysfunctional. Probably. Exactly. And, and, and that is, of course, also a propaganda strategy. And the question, of course, here is really what people make of this, right? Like, do they let themselves being demobilized? Or in, in case of your propaganda narratives, do they become mobilized or do they challenge this? So this is why what Olga and I, what we have been doing in the last years really is to look at how people deal with this confusing situation. What, what do you make of this? Yeah. So what audiences actually make of this problem? And you dealt quite a bit with this question in your studies, right, Christian? Yes, I mean, this idea that people don't just take things from the media and uh, copy-paste them into their minds. <laughs> um, this is kind of the starting point of a lot of things that I'm, I've been looking at, right? Like the, uh, the question is a little bit, uh, how do we engage this? and if there is something in the news, something uh, also like, uh, it doesn't have to be the news. It can be like your buddy that you're discussing politics over uh, a beer at a bar or like, you know, your uncle at the Seda dinner or something like this. Um, what if, if they advance ideas, if they advance new claims, how do people deal with this? And in a way, like the short answer is very selectively. Right. There is a, we have an astounding capacity to disregard uh, aspects of, uh, of claims of information that don't really fit into what we already believe. Yeah, so people just don't, don't, don't uh, you know, engage with everything they get. They don't consider in depth every new perspective, every new thought that they get. They just choose. And they have an incredibly convenient strategy for doing this. Right? Like basically, if it's not plausible, if it does not tally with what I already believe, then my best guess is that there's probably some misinformation in there. Maybe my uncle got it wrong, right? <laughs> Maybe uh, this guy I'm talking with at the bar just fell for some hoax on the internet. This can't really be the case, right? And, and you have this all the way up into political debates, into journalism. This is, like, this is not just something that lay people do. Everybody does this. Everybody works like this. You, you hear some politician saying something that kind of confirms a certain attitude or confirms a certain interpretation of the situation that you already had. And you read it as this confirmation. You don't pick up the nuances. You don't pick up the, the kind of the concessions, the details, and, and so on. And you kind of, you take the statement and you fit it into your already existing view. There is a pretty convenient strategy. Everything that fits, you call a fact. Everything that doesn't, you call interpretation. Exactly. And sometimes if interpretation just doesn't do the trick anymore, then the auxiliary uh, strategy is to just assume that they must have either misspoken or misperceived something 
or they didn't get it or they're distorting it or if you're really if it's really kind of an extreme case then they're lying to you right but like this supposition that maybe something that does not align with my normative worldview with my compass of what is good and bad could actually be true is not really a, a possibility that we voluntarily entertain the the interesting situation only arises when we cannot right like when basically when when there is something that is undeniably plausible we we can't explain it away right like we can't yeah. just say that this didn't happen and yeah. uh, we have to deal with this somehow we have to explain why we are right this is always the starting point of like how, <laughs> how, how people think about politics despite this thing being undeniably true yeah so they somehow change it or like how how people actually deal with this situation there are lots of fascinating examples of this like for instance um, a few years back um, the people who already uh, were in israel you may remember um, there was an attack on the gay pride parade in uh, jerusalem right there was right. a man who stabbed one of the participants this was very uh, widely publicized it was publicized even to the point uh, like initially the the Haredi newspapers uh, did not um, engage with this fact but information did get through so at some point people had to react to this yeah. and that kind of led um, people in the Haredi sector to a very difficult situation where undeniably one person who is Haredi uh, commits a crime that they agree is abominable is terrible that should yeah. absolutely not have hap uh, have happened um so what is the response the response is he's not Haredi he may wear the garb he may think of himself like this but a person who takes another person's life who so obviously flaunts uh, the highest commandments of what we all believe in clearly can't be a member of our community our community so, is defined by adhering to these laws so if he doesn't he's not one of us so it's yeah. a problem of the outside world it's not us so probably we need to explain to our non-israeli listeners that haredi is an extremely religious person an orthodox um, jewish uh, religious person it, it's also very um, close community right like which has a, a political discourse that happens very much within the community and does not interact very much with the rest, which is why we found like, a, um, I found this, this is case so, uh, so interesting. Like uh, I, I did a study back then together with Yossi David, a colleague who's currently at the University of Mainz in Germany, looking at how different communities dealt with this shocking crime and uh, the public reactions to this. And this is a really interesting moment because you can see how people try and struggle to maintain the story for why we got it right. Despite this happening, where you very clearly everybody agrees that this should not have happened. And this is this is there's a very, very tiny minority of people who, who condone the murder. Right. Everybody oh, yeah. is outraged. But everybody is challenged in their values in different ways depending on whether you identify with this community whether you identify with the gay and uh, lgbtq community whether you are identified with a mainstream um, different communities are challenged in different ways and they react to the same information by overlooking different aspects of it 
and by rephrasing different aspects of it so to make them fit into existing worldviews. And one researcher phrasal is that, as you mentioned, that since one person commits kind of a transgressive act, it just this person just stops to be one of us or like we exclude this person from our community. So this is only one uh, of the avenues that people take, right? Like on, on the same day as this attack of, on the gay pride parade, there was also another attack where a bunch of young Israelis threw a firebomb at a Palestinian family home and killed the family. And um, we also included this thing in the study and looked at how people react to this. And there we have, of course, like a very direct challenge to settler community where uh, these uh, young people were coming from. But they evade the undeniably true occurrence in a different way, right? They, they argue that, yes, this is terrible and this should absolutely not have happened and our hearts go out to the victims. But at the same time, if you grow up in this violent context with, you know, Palestinian uh, being threatening around you, feeling threatened, feeling, having, living in a conflict zone, young people growing up in this context, it is still wrong, but you can understand where they're coming from. That's kind of the take, right? Like this is like a kind of an excusable, bad, but excusable uh, thing that just happened. So what I'm basically saying is that um, what people really do mostly when they encounter disconfirmation, facts that they can't explain away easily, is that they um, rely on cultural knowledge that they already have in order to augment, to elaborate, to explain uh, the situations until they can dissociate themselves from these things that would be challenging. But um, this is this, these are all kind of cases, like relatively individual cases, where we deal with specific claims, specific challenges, right? And um, Olga, what you've looked at in your study is, of course, a much more interesting situation, namely when this is like saturated, when there is like huge, complex media narratives that just can't be true, true at the same time. One propaganda channel on the one side, one propaganda channel on the other side. So what do people do with that? Yeah, so in my study, I look at how people in the Eastern Ukraine form opinions about this conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And this conflict is often called hybrid because in such conflict, alongside the traditional military resources, parties also use disinformation campaigns. So these campaigns are often organized by the political actors via sponsored media channels and social networks and, as you said, bot uh, farms, uh, trolls and, and everything that <laughs> exists now from the arsenal. So uh, they use all these and try to change the domestic and foreign uh, public opinion in their favor. Mm -hmm. um, um, so as a result of this influence, audiences in Eastern Ukraine become confused, naturally. Uh, they become even disoriented and lost in this information environment. They cannot make sense of what's going on. You might also uh, have to say that uh, many of those people are bilingual, right? So they, right. Like, uh, people in Western Ukraine can listen to the channels in Ukrainian, and uh, that's relatively consistent, uh, uh, relatively, 
and uh, people on the Russian side listen to things in Russian and that is also consistent. But in Eastern Ukraine, you have the space where both narratives clash and people can listen yeah. to both of them. So there are also Ukrainian Russian language channels which are usually aligned with the Russian ideological perspective. So it's, it gets really confusing. And so these audiences are really kind of lost in this, in this space. They don't know how to engage with this information, how to process it. And I'm, I'm looking exactly at this, uh, at this confused um, audiences. So, but what I do also, I don't look at the individuals. So I don't take the person with her smartphone or TV set and ask, so what do you make of it? I take focus groups as a proxy for social environment in which people can discuss their opinions, can kind of challenge others' opinions, adjust their own opinions to others. Of course, that's, that's how people really form their opinions, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's like what almost all of us do. We don't sit in a lab and look at the screen and, and then react to a newspaper, but we like the things that we read and that, that influence us, we discuss this, we talk, talk it over. Yeah, and because of the social networks, we are always in this debate. We are always infused into this you know, interactive environment. Um, okay, so last summer I actually went there to Eastern Ukraine and made interviews with this uh, communities, also with a big, uh, in the big city, in a small village, tried to compare between them. So now I'm analyzing all this uh, huge amount of data and probably I can share some preliminary <laughs> conclusions. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so during my analysis, I noticed that in every conversation, people tended to exclude certain facts, certain perspectives, voices, ideologies, but they didn't do it randomly. There were some underlying logics in, in which people do this. So, for instance, people can repeatedly re refuse to engage uh, with the talk about political activism. They disregard political activism. They say that it's stupid, it's useless, and if you participate in politics, it doesn't do any good to you or to your community. So what do you mean if you say they exclude? is basically they, they, they refuse to discuss it. They say this is not a good topic, this is not a legitimate topic, this doesn't yeah. do anything. Yeah, they may kind of uh, get into silence and just you know, refuse literally to, to talk. Or they may disregard this person's opinion and say that it's just not relevant for our discussion. Let's get to other, other topics. What I want to explain is how these logics work, how these logics of exclusion, certain perspectives or certain opinions work in this debate and how this relates to these principles of, you know, political knowledge, responsibility, morality and all these big issues about which we talked uh, previously. So the main distinction, I think, lies between what I call the, the epistemic and the narrative logic of information. In the epistemic logic, what I mean that people, first of all, want to know facts. So they, they know to, uh, they want to engage into objective debate. The objectivity is a main criteria. They want to find out what really happened. So they want to understand what happened. Uh, they want to understand the reasons of political actors and events. But, but there are many channels and let's like, let's discuss every perspective. Let's, let's go through every kind of evidence. And also this, in this logic, the debate is not about yourself, not about your opinion. So the typical quote would be, it's not my opinion. It's something I heard on TV. It's something I heard from this channel or that channel. 
so they um, make this distance between themselves and exactly. the information. Yeah, so it's all about distancing, distancing from the uh, specific opinions. So it's not about, it's not personal, it's not about my identity. Uh, I don't fight here for, for certain cause. I just want to know what happened. So one uh, interesting example, so what people would disregard or like exclude would be some objectively false facts. So one uh, example for this would be um, the debate when someone claimed that Ukrainian government is immoral because uh, it accepted gay marriages in Ukraine. And it was not true. So everybody knew that it was not true. And they started to challenge this claim by not by calling this personal, uh, person stupid or delusional, but talking about your sources. Your sources are wrong. So probably is this something weird with your sources? So you see here how the distance is maintained between the person and, and the source. So if we understand what your sources are, we can maybe understand also what other information is trustworthy, not trustworthy. This is all about getting information, right? Yeah. So this is epistemic logic. And the exactly opposite happens with the narrative logic. So this, uh, in this logic, the debate is immersed into this ideological perspective, into the story world of ideology. So the narrative is kind of a closed structure. We have the past, we have the future, we have everything in between. So for example, in Ukrainian narrative, the Russians are always uh, the enemies. They are arch enemy of Ukraine. So there, were, there was a Russian empire, then there was Soviet Union, then there is Russian government in Kremlin, and everything of that is a kind of enemy side. So the only possible resolution for the conflict would be the eternal war with this, with this enemy, because we cannot deal with it anyway. And um, it's relatively likely to go away. So this is the explanatory logic, the explanatory mechanism that people apply in order to understand the conflict. And it can absorb any fact, give it ideological coloring and kind of provide the speaker with an explanation, with a judgment. So for instance, with the other side. So in Russian kind of narrative, the protests that happened in Ukraine were immediately tied up with the US influence. The, like, the U.S. from the times of the Cold War are fighting Russia, fighting Russian uh, you know, values. And that's why the protests happen in Ukraine. Like there are probably unconnected events, unconnected sequences of events, but narrative logic puts it all into clear cut sequence. We had exactly the same narrative in the coverage of the Syrian conflict in the Russian news. Yeah. Is U.S. intervention is the starting point of everything. And, hmm? Yeah. Um, so, like, for this logic, the normative judgment is important, more important than the factual truth. So if we talked about um, epistemic logic there, it's all about the fact. It's all about the object objectivity. How can we know what is true? Here, not. Here, like, what what is right? Who is right and who is wrong in this in this conflict, in this war? And also, uh, narrative logic always categorizes people into groups. So we have the, the us and the them, and uh, everyone should have a side, because there are no gray zones, there are nothing in, in, in the middle. Uh, everyone can be categorized and underst like, understood what she fights for.
And if you're not with us, then you are already helping the others. Yeah. So everything that doesn't fit into this narrative, the story world of good Russians and bad Ukrainians, or vice versa, um, will be excluded from the debate. So people say like it's wrong because it is it's wrong. So the like typical claim here, typical quote from the conversations that I uh, recorded would be like. I feel, I have a feeling that the truth is on our side. So you have here everything. You have here the feeling. The narratives are always about the feeling. You have the truth, the eternal truth, um, and our side, of course. So I don't want to kind of leave an impression that one logic is bad and the other is good because it's not the case. I think in political participation we need both. We need to think about political world as a world where, where we fight for power with other groups. Of course, we have our interests and they cannot always you know, compromise with others' interests. But also we don't need to you know, disregard everything and, and still maintain some feeling of objective truth. There's a, there should be facts, there should be some, some kind of uh, objective claims. And we need to kind of address both sides. Yeah, and like if politics needs passion, right? Like if we yeah. are all just doing mm -hmm. politics as if this was a bureaucratic exercise in finding the ideal compromise a lot of people would disengage and we need people engaged yeah. in politics. Exactly. So when, when, the, when there is too much distancing, then detachment of political world, of political values comes in and people just stop participate. They don't want to. And there's also something that you, I, I think you found with regards to how people are, um, are using media, depending on where they believe they are, what they think they are doing, right? Yeah, sure. So, like, if we're talking about objective facts, then probably your rational behavior would be to check many sources, to kind of address and compare and make these uh, conclusions based on multiple evidences. But if what is important for you is who is telling the truth, who is loyal to my side, then what I look for in the media are the journalists or the sources that promote particular ideological agendas that aligns with my opinion. Mm -hmm. and, and if you distrust all, if there is no such journalist, if they're all liars, what do you do then? Yeah, then probably the, the reaction would be kind of switch off, you know, to disregard the, the entire media sphere and just what people often do in these situations, they switch to interpersonal communication they ask their neighbors they ask their friends or so what you think about it they kind of use the, f the social environment as a filter mm -hmm. <laughs> a proper filter bubbles so they they use the social connections as a suppliers of information which is very easy now with the social network so people really then rely on their neighborhood their friends network exactly this thing that we talked about in the beginning as the the echo chambers right yeah the problem is when the media sphere entirely is kind of uh, eliminated from the people's view so they distrust everything they don't really dis discern between the left and the right or whatever sides they just say okay they all lie 
then the only thing that is left is basically people whom, whom I trust because I know them. So there, there is my truth, there is the truth of my friends, and this is my basically my source and my place for interaction. Yeah, and, and this is exactly this, uh, the root of this problem in a way uh, that we discussed in the beginning, right? This kind of resentment, this populism, this uh, aggressiveness in political communication. If I, if I start my entire reading of everything, my understanding of politics from the assumption that I, my friends, my community got it right and everybody else is lying, everybody else is not just different, but they're they're actually uh, telling things that are untrue. Then there is no basis really anymore for like a constructive debate in, in a particular on any particular issue, right? And and uh, in a way, I think this is a much more important side of this populist debate than what we mostly speak about. Most complaints about populism are focused on the fact that this is against elites, like this is kind of anti-institutional, where people distrust politicians, people distrust the media, people hate outgroups, immigrants. This is all not nice, obviously. But yeah. one side effect of this is that they start distrusting one another, right? We yeah. have this crazy resentment within society where one group within society hates the other group in society. And that has something, I think, very fundamentally to do with this kind of mix-up between the, the epistemic and the normative, in a sense, that we are driven strongly by our understanding of what is plausible and uh, appropriate to say from our point of view. And we completely disregard the fact that things look differently from somebody else's point of view and may also mean and lead to different conclusions from other people's point of view, right? Yeah, so probably we shouldn't call everybody who disregards the other stupid or insane. And um, people have their reasons that we can conclude from our studies. People use really elaborate strategies in order to disregard the other. Of course, sometimes like people believe things that are untrue. I also believe things that are untrue, probably, and every one of us. But more important is to engage in the discussion in the debate and not to just disregard the other not to exclude the other from your from your information environment actually disagreement can be in a way constructive for democracy yeah absolutely right i mean this is this is also how uh, we become aware of the fact that our personal worlds are not the only worlds that exist you know, like we're denying ourselves so much of an opportunity to actually come to better solutions to understand better what's going on. If yeah, we generally always assume that whoever comes to a different conclusion from ours is probably stupid and didn't get it. That's, that's not helpful. Yeah. So Christian, and what your like other part of the solution will be? What, what you, would you like to recommend to the kind of journalistic community or to the public sphere that includes experts and journalists? Well, and I think on the whole, journalism has gotten quite a bad beating over the last decade in this entire fake news debate and so on. And I think this is quite unjustified. And people are really asking whether in the digital age where all information is available at a fingertip, uh, whether there is really a future for journalism. And I would say that it has never been more important than now. Because the problem that journalists solve in the digital news environment 
is not that they make us first aware of something. Digital media are pretty good at this. Yeah, they do but not produce news, right? They don't, as, yeah. as they used to. Well, I mean, like, they're, they're all different aspects of this, right? Like in, in terms of kind of figuring out whether whatever, which football game on which part of the country ended with which result, nothing beats algorithms, right? Like as a journalist, you cannot compete with this. But um, among all these millions of different things that are being said by people who have seen something, who have experienced something, who draw political conclusions, who um, advance claims, who want something, who attack somebody, all these things, these are simultaneously present on the internet. And if we are going out there ourselves as lay people and try and find what happened, we're most likely ending up reading only things that confirm what we already believed. Journalists are information brokers. That is the thing that they are doing. They're specializing in getting and evaluating information. And if there is anything that is truly, really important in this uh, information environment where there's all these uh, contested claims, where there is forgery and fake, where people do lie, it's somebody who is specialized in looking through all this, evaluating us, uh, and giving us a nuanced view of what is sound, what makes sense, what is corroborated, and what is really problematic and what is potentially not worth believing. And we don't need this in the hand of one big algorithm by Facebook that labels uh, fake news, right? Like this is a kind of power that you definitely don't want to invest in one company and certainly not in an algorithm. My experience with algorithms, and I work a lot with algorithms, is that they're not among the smartest uh, 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 <laughs> beings <laughs> on the planet. Um, Sorry. How dare you call algorithms stupid? <laughs> yeah, like I hope this doesn't lead uh, this podcast to be downranked now in all the machines. The algorithm is now insulted and says this can't be. <laughs> um, no, but like this is something that you want to give to people who are experts and to many of them. So there are different experts who come to different conclusions, who can fight in public over what are the more reasonable and the less reasonable interpretations of political events. And that is called journalism. Of course, journalists make mistakes. And of course, there are journalists with a political agenda, which is legitimate, by the way, right? Like it is completely yeah. fine that you have an opinion if you cover the news. You need to, you, your obligation is to get the facts right. And your obligation is to give a fair representation of objections of other viewpoints. And if a journalist doesn't do this well, they are out of business because their capital is their credibility, right? Yeah. So journalists do get it wrong every now and then, but they have a strong professional incentive to try and not get it wrong. Because if they do get it wrong too often, they lose credibility and a journalist without credibility can basically go and become, uh, you know, go to the uh, collect uh, food stamps. <laughs> Whereas like the person on the internet who just wrote down what is the truth about this conspiracy or whatever, what is going on. If it turns out that this person got it wrong, this yeah. person just disappears. There are no sanctions. This person has no incentive to give it, uh, to, to tell you the truth. You may find people on the internet who know things better, but you can never know. But with journalists, you have a good reason to think that they are probably trying to get it right. And that is better than what you can say about almost everybody else on the internet. All right. 
So probably we can then conclude on this positive note, right? Optimistic or naive, as my <laughs> as others might say. Thank you, Olga, for having this really nice conversation with me. That was yeah. Thank you, Christian. It was real fun. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by the Smart Family Institute. Our producer and editor is Cyril Sharon, with the help of Ori Dror, the coordinator of the Smart Family Institute of Communication at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Special thanks to Idanami Danhi, which is me, for recording the opening and closing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the SIP. You can find us at the Smart Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next episode, stay home and stay smart.